this morning to this third week of Advent. Uh, If you've been with us, we've been celebrating this four-week period before the Christmas holiday. Um, Advent means coming or arrival, and it's a time for the church to meditate, to think through, to anticipate both the coming of Christ in Bethlehem, an event that has taken place in history, and reflect on the coming again of Christ in the future, our hope. We've been breaking the story of Advent through the scripture into different chapters. We talked about um, the, the, the one, the, 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 the fallen warrior, the one that was going to crush the head of the snake and defeat death, but even in his conquering of our enemy was going to be killed by it. And we talked about that two weeks ago. And uh, last week we talked about the trustworthy prophet, the one who's going to come and bring wisdom. And by following his wisdom, we can learn to live lives that are both honoring to God and fulfilling to us. This week, uh, chapter three in our Advent story, we're calling The Conquering King. We're going to be in Psalm 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, the Bible's in the pew in front of you. Uh, Psalm 2 is on page 472 in that Bible. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about kings. Thomas Jefferson, one of our favorite founding fathers, said, I was much an enemy to monarchies before I came to Europe. I am 10,000 times more so since I have seen what they are. There is scarcely an evil known in these countries which may not be traced to their king as its source. Thomas Jefferson did not like kings, and he was part of this rebel movement in the colonies of Britain to establish a new kind of government. And if you know your American history, we are um, the benefactors of one of the first constitutional republics in the world where we do not have a monarchy ruling over us. We have a representative government, and Jefferson was one of the key authors of that framework. And and so as Americans, we say, yeah, we don't like kings. We are self-represented. But for some reason, we, we really do like kings. If you look at our literature, at our, our media, our entertainment, it's they're just, just filled with kings. We've got King Arthur of Camelot. We've got King Aragorn from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. We've got King Mufasa of the Pride Lands. All of these kings and all of our stories follow these, these, these tales of these special people in these special places. I did a quick Google search this week, and here's, here's some headlines that I came up with. Here's what the royal family eats for Christmas. Princess Charlotte wants a pony for Christmas. When is the next royal baby due? These are all American publications. So we're fascinated with royalty and kings. And we want special people to live special lives in our sight. And if you're like, well, I don't care about the British royal family. That's silly. Superheroes are the same way, right? Like if you're into Iron Man or Superman or Ms. Marvel, these are special people with special powers. What does Spider-Man say? With great power comes great responsibility. That's the motto of a king. This bleeds into our real life as well. I remember back in 2008, there was this 
bright young senator from Illinois. He was a great speaker, and he was thrust upon the national stage, bringing hope and change, and he was going to bring a new day to America. President Obama was elected, and everybody was freaking out about it. But then eight years later, this out-of-the-box businessman who wasn't a political insider was going to come, and he was going to drain the swamp. Every couple of years, we get really excited about the guy that's going to come and save us all, even though we know deep down that's not how our government works, and the president really doesn't have that much power. But we want that. We want a king. We want someone to lead us and guide us and be our hero. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's a little background if you're not familiar. Last week, we were in the book of Deuteronomy, which was the beginning of the story of the people of God, uh, the people of Israel. And throughout the period of this nation that is recorded in the scriptures, their artists, their musicians, their poets, they wrote songs. They wrote songs to uh, express their joy to God, express their fear about the world. They wrote songs for festivals and parties, for special occasions and feasts. And they all got recorded over a period of about a thousand years in the book we call the Psalms. There's 150 of them, ranging in authorship from Moses all the way to men and women who returned from the Babylonian exile in the 500s B.C. And Psalm 2 is a coronation song. It's It's a song that will be sung when a new king ascends to the throne. And uh, the New Testament says it it was one of David's songs. Maybe he wrote it. Maybe it was for his coronation. We're not sure. But it was probably used over and over again as a new king came to power. But there's a funny thing about the Psalms. Because God's word, even though human authors wrote these words, they were guided, they were led, the word the Bible uses is inspired by God himself. And so these human words become God's words. And there are a series of Psalms that we call messianic Psalms because as we read them, we go, this doesn't really fit the situation on the ground in Israel. It seems to be talking about something else, something in the future. Psalm 2 is a messianic Psalm, as we will see. It's it's talking about a king's coronation, but it's also talking about something greater than that. So let's take a look at Psalm 2. We're going to look at the first three verses. This is scene one in our story of the conquering king, and we're going to call it rebellion. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. So the psalmist starts his song with this idea that the the nations are raging and the people are rebelling. Verse 3 might be better translated, let's tear off their yoke. If you've been with us in our study of Matthew, Jesus talks about the yoke sometimes. The yoke is a, is a farming implement that would be put on the animals to help them 
pull either a plow or a wagon. And so it's a useful tool, but it's also a burden. Over the the centuries, the rabbis would have called God's law a yoke. Remember, we talked last week about the, the wisdom that God brings. He says, live your life like this. This is how I want you to worship me. This is how I want you to share my love with your neighbors. This is how I want you to behave yourselves. And the nations and the people are, they say, no, we don't want that. We don't want your yoke. We don't want to be told what to do. And we think, we think this about ourselves. We think we want freedom. We, we want to be removed from bondage and rules and regulations and someone telling us how to live our lives. That's bondage. But the reality is, is we need that yoke. We need some kind of framework or everything just goes haywire. The classic example of this is, is the kite on the string, right? The, the kite is, is taut on the string against the, uh, in the power of the wind and the, and the kite is fighting against the string and maybe the kite thinks, if only I was free from this string, I could really fly. But if you cut the scr- string, what happens to the kite? It just falls to the ground. It needs the string in order to be fruitful. But the nations, the kings, they say, no, I don't want that. I don't want your law. I don't want your rule they conspire together to throw off the yoke. And we see this today. We see, we can look around the world and see this all over the place. The kings, the rulers of the world are living lives and making decisions that are completely outside the scope of how God would have us live. The men that we have given power to don't submit to the rule of Yahweh the nation of Myanmar right now, they are in, the government is engaging in a systematic campaign to terrorize and drive out 1.3 million Rohingya Muslims from their homes. And they're raping and murdering and killing people because of fear and prejudice and racism. And this is the government doing that. The Maduro government in Venezuela is exploiting his people for the benefit of his own wealth and is currently creating one of the greatest refugee crises we've ever seen in this century. And this hits close to home as well. Our own country has been involved in a war in Afghanistan for 18 years. That's longer than some of you have been alive. During that time, 2,000 of our soldiers have been killed, 20,000 have been wounded, and 150,000 Afghans have been killed. Almost 40,000 of them are civilians. And it came out last week that three U.S. presidents and their administrations have lied to the American people about it for 18 years, about how successful it's going. Leaders of nations are overwhelmingly corrupt and in rebellion to the rule of God. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He implicates the people too. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? You and I, we are lumped in with our leaders in this. We are in rebellion to the king. Because while on one hand we want the king, on the other hand we we don't want to be ruled. 
We want to tear off the yoke of the king because the king makes demands on our lives. He says, this is how I want you to treat your body. This is how I want you to treat your stuff. This is how I want you to treat other people. And we don't like it and we want out. We're in rebellion to the king. Let's move on to scene two, the coronation Verse 4 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So Yahweh says, I have set up a king. The God of the universe has anointed a king. And so in the context of the psalm, traditionally, this would have been the, the, the coronation ceremony of the king of Israel and the rubber stamp of God on that king. But as we, as we realize that this is bigger than that, God says, I have this new king, this greater king, this coming king, and I am installing him on my mountain, the, the throne of the world. Yahweh speaks, and then the king speaks in verse 7. He says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter, and you will shatter them like pottery. So the king is speaking, and he says, today I have become the son. You have become my father. And, and we get this confused sometimes. We think that this is birth language. Even in, in some of our most popular verses that talk about the only begotten son, and, and we think, well, was Jesus created? Did the father make the son? Some of the, the Christian cults believe that. They, they'll say that, that, that Jesus was created but this isn't birth language all throughout Scripture when it talks about the only begotten Son or the relationship between the Father and Son. This is, this is relation, relational status language. And right in this passage, it is coronation language. The Father saying, take your rightful place on the throne as king. Yahweh is giving the king authority and rulership over all the other nations. And we see this language in the life of Jesus. We turn to Matthew chapter 3. We studied this a number of months ago. But Matthew chapter 3 talks about Jesus' baptism. When, in verse 16, Matthew writes, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and the heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so God announces the sonship of this king. But then later on, the followers of Jesus make an interesting connection. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, the apostle Paul is speaking.
In verse 32 of chapter 13 of the book of Acts, Paul says, and we proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. So what Paul says is, is looking back, he's reading Psalm 2 and he's saying, when Jesus rose from the dead... Psalm 2 was fulfilled. The coronation ceremony of King Jesus happened, Paul says, on the cross. And if you read the Gospels, when you get to the end, there's all of this language that seems kind of weird the writers talk about Jesus going up to the cross. They, they highlight these weird stories of these soldiers making fun of him and putting a crown of thorns on his head and a robe on him and bowing down to him and, and hailing him. And there's all these other little touch points throughout the Gospels. And anyone in the first century that would have read this book would have said, that sounds like a coronation ceremony, but it's this weird, twisted execution because the authors of Scripture are keying into this idea that when Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus died for our sin and rose from the dead, that was him ascending his throne and taking his seat as the ruler of the world. Another passage in Acts, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles have been arrested because uh, they've been telling everyone that Jesus is the king and the savior. And they got released, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, Luke writes, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the apostles, they get arrested. They're being persecuted for their faith. And they, they get out of jail and they come together and they pray and they go, oh, this is like Psalm 2. The nations, the people, everyone is is." Throw, trying to throw off the yoke of the king, but we have come to realize that we are the king's people. We are the servants of the king. And this, this persecution that is coming upon us is because of him. I've been listening. Um, if you're a fan of N.T. Wright, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar. He's got a new book out, and so he's been kind of hitting the podcast circuit. 
And so I've been catching different podcasts with him on it. And, and he's brought up this, this thing a couple times. Um, if, you've, if you're familiar with like the Da Vinci Code and, and um, just the idea that we have four gospels in the Bible, but there's all these other secret gospels. There's these books that um, the story goes that the church hid from everyone because of the church's agenda. At least that's how the Da Vinci Code says it happened. There's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Peter, and, and they tell the other story about the life of Christ. The truth of, of that is that those, the books that we have in our Bible come from the first century, within the, the time of the eyewitnesses of the events. The, the lost Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels, they were written about 100 years afterwards. So they're automatically not quite as credible. Um, and if you read them, and you could read them, they're free, you can find them online. They're kind of weird. They don't have a whole lot of story about Jesus. They don't talk about his life. They don't talk about where he went and what he did. They just have a lot of sayings from Jesus. They're kind of like, I don't know, they kind of remind me of fortune cookies, just verse after verse after verse of wisdom sayings. But N.T. Wright, in, in this podcast I was listening to, he points out that during the second century A.D., there were groups of people that were reading these Gnostic Gospels and following their teachings. And, the, and this Jesus in these Gospels, they taught how to gain some kind of secret knowledge, how to get this, this private understanding of religion and, and faith and and. And if you were part of this group, you were part of this secret club. And it's, it's a very different story than the Gospels we have in the Bible. Because in the second century, the Roman government did not care if you were a follower of the Gnostic Jesus. They did not care if you thought that he had some secret knowledge for you. But if you're a follower of the Jesus of the Bible you got thrown to the lions. You got cut into pieces. You got burnt at the stake. Why? Because the Jesus of the Gospels is making a political statement. He's saying, I am king of kings and lord of lords. And that's an affront to Caesar. It's, a fr it's an affront to earthly kings. And that's what the apostles see in the book of Acts is that they are now on the side of King Jesus who has come to rule the world. Let's move on to scene three of our story. A warning and an invitation. Look at verse 10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So the psalmist starts speaking again and he has a warning. And we, we think that like warnings are aggressive. They're threatening, like I'm warning you. And I guess that could be the case, but in general, a warning is an expression of grace. It's an expression of mercy. 
for our last wedding anniversary, my wife and I stayed at Silver Mountain uh, in the valley, and it was August, so there wasn't any snow. But we climbed up to the top. We hiked up to the top. And every so often, you'd see these signs that were big, and they were bright, and they were scary, and they said, warning, you may die. <laughs> and, and then in little letters underneath, it said, like, the ski patrol doesn't go any farther, so if you go down this hill, we're not coming after you. And that's a gift, right? Like if that sign is not there, you don't know. You're still, you're still gonna die, but you have no idea because there's a sign there. You can see it and you can turn back. It's a warning, but it's, it's a good thing. And, and the psalmist says, kings, be wise. Listen to the king, serve the king, worship the king. King Jesus will conquer his enemies. He has ascended to the throne and he's returning again to make all things right. He will rule the world and there is no escape from him. Derek Kidner in his Psalms commentary writes, there is no refuge from him, only in him. There is no refuge from him, only in him. All who take refuge in him are happy. So we have these these mixed emotions. On the one hand, we don't want to submit to the king. We want to go our own way. We want to rebel. We don't want to be told what to do or how to live. And that's in all of us, whether you're calling yourself a Christian or not this morning that's in there and you want to you want to fight back against submission to the king but there's also this other part of us that just needs to be led that is begging to submit to a good ruler and the psalmist warns Be on the king's side. Take refuge in him. Accept the gift of his leadership. And this is advice. This is advice for other kings, right? And we looked a couple weeks ago at Genesis and we said that Adam and Eve, the first people, were given authority to rule the world and subdue it under the under the rulership of God, there to be kings and queens over the earth. And that's the legacy that humanity has. And we've screwed it up. We've broken it endlessly. But we are meant to rule and reign under the leadership of the king over the entire earth. And as God's people, as Christians, if you look forward to the end of the book, that is our destiny. We will be set up as kings and queens under the rulership of Jesus. So the psalmist's advice is to all of us. So what are some practical implications of this advice? He says, so now kings, be wise, receive instruction. The first thing is, we need to be people who listen to the king. We need to be people that that are in prayer to the king, that speak to the king, that study the word of God, that spend time amongst God's people. 
And we are so weak at this. I, I mean, I speak for myself, but how, ma- how many of us can raise our hands and go, my prayer life is awesome. I've, my, my devotional reading in scripture, I'm just nailing it this year. We are so easily distracted. It's not because we don't have time. It's because we don't make time. We don't prioritize listening to the king. And as people that are obsessed with kings of various kinds, why don't we choose to become obsessed with the real king? What does King Jesus have to say to me today in this book? Listen to the king. But then verse 11, serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Obey the king. This is one step further. There's a lot of us, I think, that, that like to pray, that like to read the word, but, but is Jesus our king or is he our consultant? Like, yeah, this is what God says. I will take that under advisement as I plan my life. See, the good news of the gospel is that while we find ourselves in the same category as the raging nations, we are enemies of King Jesus. We deserve what's coming to us, but instead we are invited into his family to live under his rule. And the psalmist says, rejoice with trembling. Because salvation is a gift. I talked last week about my honeymoon in Thailand. And my wife and I um, spent a week in Phuket at the end of our trip. Phuket's kind of a resort town, the base of Thailand. And unfortunately, she got sick. And so she spent a couple days in the hotel. And I rented a scooter and uh, toured the island. And at one of my scooter trips, this was my first time on a two-wheeled motorized vehicle ever, and uh, it was, I was having fun. And I was driving along the highway, and this bus came out of nowhere. Like one of those big tour buses with the big windows sticking out, the rear windows sticking out. And it passed, it, it was like a two-lane street, but it passed me from behind, like right there, <laughs> and it just went boom, and it really scared me, and I, thankfully I didn't crash, but then I saw this bus just kind of f- drive off into the distance going 50 miles an hour or something. And in that moment, I rejoiced with trembling because I was not dead, but I could have been. And the realization that, wow, that was close. I've been given another chance at life right now. It's a sobering fact, and it's a, it's a joyous thing, but it's also a scary thing. And I think this is what the psalmist is getting at. The king has every right to destroy us because we have rebelled against him. 
and yet he has offered us life. He has offered us admittance into his family. He has given us grace. We should be people that rejoice in that with the sober uh, understanding that we don't deserve it. So listen to the king, obey the king. And then thirdly, verse 12 says, pay homage to the son. Worship the king. This is something that I think is probably the hardest for us because in in my mind, I'm a doer. I like to check boxes. I like to make lists. And so there are are times in my life where I I actually do really nail all the things. I'm, I'm praying, check, reading my Bible, check. But there's more to a relationship with God than just doing the things. Get to know Jesus. Learn to love Jesus. Worship the King. The psalmist says, all who take refuge in him are happy. Does Jesus bring you happiness? Does Jesus bring you joy? Or is religion just something that you just have to do because it's expected of you or it's one of your obligations? It's a box to check. This John Piper quote, maybe you've heard of it. It's, it's pretty sobering. Piper says, what's, he says, the, the, the critical question of our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you'd ever tasted and no human conflict and or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? It's a good question. What's the the greatest thing about being a Christian? The answer should be Jesus. Are we people that actually love Jesus? Jesus, they actually have a relationship with Jesus? Or are we just people that benefit from church? Piper asks, if, if all of the wonderful things that you are anticipating about life in the future are a part of that vision, except Jesus isn't there, do you miss him? a good question. We we get so caught up in the things that Jesus will do for us. I need Jesus to fix my marriage. I need Jesus to fix my kids. I need Jesus to fix my finances. But it's bigger than that. More than any of those things, and Jesus might do those things. We shouldn't be afraid to ask Jesus for those things. But more than that, we get Jesus, the King. And so this is part of the story of Advent. The King is coming, and the King has already been here. He has ascended the throne of his cross and received the crown in his resurrection, and he is 
coming back soon to rule and reign in justice and righteousness and peace. And all of those people that are his will reign with him. And he's going to rule with an iron scepter. There's not going to be any dissension in Jesus' kingdom. But he's also going to rule as the prince of peace. And as we think about the king, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we, are we with the nations? Are we raging? Are we pushing back against his rule? Or are we taking refuge in him? There is no refuge from him, only in him. We'll take communion and we'll sing. And the communion meal is is this ceremony, this rite that Jesus has instituted, the night that he was betrayed, the night that he, he set in motion his coronation as king. He said, eat the bread. It represents my body broken for you and and drink the wine. It represents my blood shed on your behalf. In this ceremonial meal, we remember the acts of the king on our behalf. And, And whether you're fascinated with the kings of ancient literature or whether you're fascinated with the kings of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're all special people that do special things that don't exist. Jesus is a special person that does special things for you. And it's, it's real. He really did die on your place, on, on, in your place, on the cross for your sins. And he deserves our worship and our love and our obedience. And he invites us into his family to rule and reign with him, not because we deserve it, but because he is good. Let's pray. God, we we want to be people that bow our knees to King Jesus. Help us to recognize your authority over our lives. God, help us to live lives that honor you. But God, more than that, help us to be people that see Jesus as our greatest treasure. God, the the John Piper question hits me every time I read it. If everything was awesome and perfect and beautiful and wonderful, but you weren't there, would I even notice? God, help us to be people that need you more than we need anything else. Give us the strength to pursue you and and the grace 
to get up when we fail. God, thank you for the warning that while we could, in our disobedience, immediately be judged, you have every right to bring quick judgment on this world, both globally and in every heart in this room. You don't. You wait. You call out. You draw. Because you don't You don't want anyone to perish. You want all of us to be in your family, ruling as kings and queens alongside of you. God, we thank you for your grace. God, help us to remember that grace for our own lives and give it out to others. We look forward to your coming. Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.